in June of this year. A guy called Dermot. He bought a plane ticket to Glasgow, from Dublin to Glasgow. And he arrived at Dublin Airport. But once he got through security, he didn't go towards the gate to board the plane to visit that wonderful city. If you've ever been, you know how wonderful it is. My home city. Instead, he walked straight from the departure area into the arrivals. Went through passport control and arrived at the baggage reclaim hall. So why would you do that? Why would you buy a ticket and then just use it to, and then just go through the airport? Well, that was because a few days earlier, he'd arrived in Dublin airport on a flight from Australia. But unfortunately, his luggage didn't. As happened to so many people this summer, his luggage got lost somewhere. And the next day, when he contacted the airport to ask about his luggage, he couldn't get through. And then when he went back to the airport, the staff there were so overwhelmed by all the people who were there looking for their luggage that they couldn't help him either. And obviously, he couldn't just walk directly into the baggage reclaim area. That's because, as you might have seen, there's a no re-entry system in the airport. Once you've gone through those arrival doors, you can't just go back and walk back into the rest of the airport. So that's when Dermot decided to buy a ticket for a cheap flight and use that ticket not to travel, but to get in through security and into the baggage hall and to search for and ultimately find his lost case. Now what's that got to do with us this Sunday morning? Well, we're getting back this week to looking at the letter of Hebrews which we were studying before we had this series on what's the story. And we're going to read a passage that many people find really disturbing. That's because on first reading, it seems that it's possible for believers in Jesus to fall away from their relationship with Christ and be lost. And if that happens then there's a no re-entry system in place. You could read this passage and think it's like Dublin Airport with those no re-entry gates. That there's no way back into God's kingdom. And so some people have read this passage and they've been terrified that they've fallen so far from Christ that they have become lost and can never get back. But I hope that as we go through this passage, we'll see that although there is a real serious warning here, it doesn't have to remove our assurance of our salvation. Instead, like the author of Hebrews, we can be confident of better things. So we're going to read our passage now. It's Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to break into verse 4. This is where we kind of stopped last time. So Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 4 down to verse 12. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. 
Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and are subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. As we've seen, the writer of this letter believed that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the Jewish high priests. As he says in the start of this book, he says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And because of this, what he can do in our lives is better. He is the destroyer of the, of, of the devil. He is the conqueror of death. He is the one who can set us free from fear. He is the one who can bring us into ultimate rest. And so the challenge that he brought in this letter was to fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, to be committed to Jesus, to depend on Him for everything that we need. But some of the original readers of this letter, they were struggling to do this. Some of them were even tempted to give up completely and go back to the Judaism that they had come from. And so this letter was written to help them to understand exactly What was at stake? To see the seriousness of falling away and instead to commit their lives to Christ. But there's a real challenge in this passage. Actually, it's one of the most controversial passages in the whole of the New Testament. Hopefully we'll not all fall out over it. And in part of that is because the language in this passage is quite ambiguous. He, he says some things without fully explaining the terms that he's using. And so it kind of opens up to a variety of different interpretations. And so I think what we need to do here is apply a principle that's very helpful when we look at the Bible. And that is to interpret the obscure by the obvious. To interpret the obscure by the obvious. If we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, then we know that one part of the Bible will not contradict another part. 
Because it's all written by the same author. And so we need to understand this more more obscure passage in a way that is consistent with all the more obvious passages. We need to let Scripture help us to interpret Scripture. And that's important when we come here because as I said at the start, some people think this passage teaches us that believers in Jesus can be irretrievably lost. This is what they read, verse 4 to 6. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. So according to this view, these verses describe someone who has been saved, but then they decide to reject Jesus. And so they are lost. They are again enemies of God. They are again outside of God's kingdom. And not only that, they can never be saved again. They've kind of crossed over that point of no return. And if all that we had of the Bible was these verses, then maybe you could say that sounds what it's saying. We might think they're right in saying that. But the problem with this view, it is that it is inconsistent with the very many plain and obvious Bible verses that teach about the security of those who trust in Jesus. For example, let me just give you a couple. Jesus said this, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. Or one of my favourite verses. I've got a lot of favourite verses, but this is one of them. John 10. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And it's not just that we have to go to other books of the Bible, like the Gospel of John, the couple of verses that I've quoted there. We don't have to go to other books of the Bible to see that truth being expressed. Because that truth is actually expressed in the book of Hebrews itself. So, because Jesus is alive, Hebrews 7.25 says this, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Because He always lives to intercede for them. Or the promise of the new covenant that we have in Christ is this. I will forgive their sins, their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. And then in Hebrews 10, because of the the finished work of Jesus on the cross, by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So God's wonderful promise is that never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. 
So the rest of the Bible and the rest of Hebrews is teaching us that Christians can never fall away and be lost forever. To hold that view of Hebrews chapter 6 would be to hold a view that's inconsistent with the rest of the Bible's teaching on the eternal security of those who trust in Jesus. So today we can be sure that if we have faith in Jesus, then we are safe in his hands. And nothing and no one can separate us from his love. So what then is this passage warning us against? Because it is a serious warning. Well, again, there are a number of views. A number of views that are, that are attempting to be consistent with the, the truth that we've just described about, about the eternal security of those who have trusted in Jesus. Some scholars believe that this is a high, hypocr- not hypocritical, a hypothetical situation that can't actually happen. Now, the writer is saying, if a Christian fell away, and by the way, they can't, then it would be impossible to bring them back to repentance. Other people think that the judgment is talking, that the writer is talking about here is not the loss of salvation, but the loss of reward. That they'll lose out in some way, but they'll still be saved. But the view that I believe best fits what the passage is saying is that the people the author is talking about here are those who seem to be genuine Christians. They participate, they've participated in the church community of God's people, in the church. But when they fall away, they show that they've never really had genuine faith in Jesus. So, verse 4, they've been enlightened in the sense that they've learned the gospel. They've tasted the heavenly gift because they've experienced some of the joy, some of the love, some of the peace that God gives to his people through faith in Christ. They've shared in the Spirit, maybe being impacted by his presence when they gather together with God's people, maybe being convicted under his influence. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Maybe they read the Bible, enjoy it, get get this comfort or encouragement from it. They've even experienced the powers of the coming age. Maybe seen God at work in people's lives and in difficult situations. They might even have publicly repented, confessing their faith publicly. And so to those around them, they look the part. They talk the talk. But although they might fool others, and even might fool themselves, God knows where they stand. He knows that although they've experienced all of this, they've never really put their faith in Jesus. They've never really accepted him as Saviour and Lord. Maybe they are like those that Jesus spoke about when he said this in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people, can, these people participated in the community of faith. They were involved alongside believers in evangelism, in deliverance, in miracles. And yet they never really came into a real relationship with Christ. They were never saved. I never knew you, Jesus said. And so, when they fall away, if they reject Jesus, they don't lose their salvation said they just showed that they were never saved in the first place. They were like Judas. Judas looked like one of the disciples. He listened to Jesus' teaching. He saw Jesus' miracles. He even shared in Jesus' mission. He was sent out among the twelve and among the seventy-two to take the gospel to the people. And yet when the time came, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he showed that he was always the one doomed to destruction. He was never saved. The author illustrated this from the world of farming. Look at verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for the one, for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. Like the good soil in, in Jesus' parable of the sower, those who respond to the word of God with faith will produce a good crop for the Lord of the harvest. They will receive the blessing of God, the gift of eternal life in God's presence forever. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless. It's in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Like the other soils in Jesus' parable, these people have the same privilege of hearing the gospel, of sat in church and listened and heard. But they don't respond with genuine faith. They resist the truth. Or they don't let it penetrate right into the depths of their being. Or instead they choose the pleasure of this world or the deceitfulness of wealth. So they produce nothing of value for God. So they show that they're still under the curse of their sin. They're still facing the wrath of God. It's a serious warning, folks. It makes us shudder when we think of it. We think of it for ourselves or for others or people that we know. But if that's what this passage is talking about, how can we understand this warning? It's impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Verse 4 and 6. If these people appear like believers... 
But ultimately they turn and they walk away from Jesus having never put their faith in Him. Does that mean that they can never, ever be saved? Well, that's one possibility. They've tasted all that Jesus died to give them. But they've thrown it all back in His face. And so to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. It's as if they have chosen to stand in solidarity with those who drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. They've finally and decisively rejected Christ, hardening their hearts against God's grace and God's love. It's a frightening possibility that people could resist the work of God's Spirit so decisively that they might never be saved. That should terrify us, I think, today. But some understand this warning differently. The tense of verse 6 allows it to be translated in this way. That it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance, not because they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, but while they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. So it's possible that what the writer was saying was not that they could never ever repent ever again, but they could never repent while they are still rejecting Jesus. That's because Jesus is the only way to salvation. If we reject Him, then we can never be saved. Because there's no other way. So hold out at least the hope that once they stop disgracing Christ, they could be brought back to repentance and faith in Him. But whichever understanding is right of this verse, it does show the seriousness of rejecting Jesus. This is not a a small thing. If we don't accept Him as Lord, we are, as it were, nailing Him to the cross. We are rejecting Him as a failure and a fraud. And that puts us in grave danger. I'll be lost forever. Because Jesus is the only way to be saved. He is the only hope for this world. So the author of Hebrews understood what was at stake. He knew that some people might look like they're followers of Jesus, but later on show that they've never really trusted in him. And he knew how serious the consequences of that would be. It's a serious warning for us today. We need to consider the possibility that we are here this morning in exactly that situation. You can attend church all your life and still be in that situation. Being here this morning does not guarantee our salvation. Being brought up in the church doesn't guarantee our salvation. If we don't put trust, respond to Jesus in faith.
then there's no other way to be saved. But the writer of this section, the writer in concluded this section with not this leaving us with this warning, but with a, an encouragement. An encouraging declaration about his confidence that his readers were not like that. Look what he says in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. This was his conviction. Yes, some people might fall away and show that they had never been saved in the first place. But he didn't think his readers were going to be like that. He was confident of better things for them. He was sure that they would not turn away from, from Christ. Not because, not because that would save them. But that would be the evidence that they had been saved. That they had trusted in Jesus. That they were genuine believers. Their perseverance would be the, the proof of their faith. Why was that? Why was he so confident about them? Well, of course, in one sense, he couldn't be certain. Only God sees in someone's heart. Only God knows exactly how someone stands before him. But he was confident they were true believers because he could see their genuine loving service to God's family. Verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. This love for other Christians was the evidence that they were in relationship with God. This love for the believers was the proof that they were true believers themselves. This is what John wrote in his letter. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. As our brothers in Christ, that's God's family. God is love. And so the fruit of, the, of, of love that grows when we are in relationship with God is love for His people. So if we put our faith in Jesus, then this should be an increasing evidence in our life. Of course, none of us will ever be perfect. We'll always fall very far short of God's standard. But if our faith is genuine, then we will see God's grace at work in our lives, changing us, empowering us, equipping us to serve Him, and especially in our dedication, our commitment, our love for God's people. And that's the evidence that can deep, uh, deepen our assurance that we do really belong to Christ. Not because we are who we should be, but because we're not what we used to be. So he's confident about the, the genuineness of his reader's faith. But he didn't say, oh well, I'm sure you're safe, so guys, just sit back and relax and take it easy. This was not an excuse for complacency. Instead, this was an encouragement. This was a, a, a wake-up call. To keep on going in the walk with Christ. 
Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hopes sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He desperately wanted them to persevere in their faith to show that they were truly children of God. Not just to walk with Christ for a couple of years or a couple of decades and then to give up and to walk away. Because that would put them in grave danger. But rather to keep on going to show that they truly were followers of Jesus. That they truly were children of God. That they truly were on their way to heaven. And that's what we need to do as well. This passage is a serious warning to us. It's not a comfortable passage to read. and certainly not to speak about. But we mustn't miss this. It's possible for us to be involved in a church, to experience some of what it means to be a Christian, and yet not have genuine faith in Christ. If we walk away from Him then we're disgracing Christ. And we're putting ourselves in real danger. And it's possible that we might never get back. So this morning, we need to examine our hearts again. Examine our lives. Make sure that we have put our faith in Jesus. Make sure that our lives are showing evidence, not perfection of course, but evidence that God is at work changing us. And especially giving us that gift of love. Love for Him and love for others. That we are showing the evidence of things that accompany salvation. If we look at our lives and examine them today, and we find that we're not in the faith, then please don't put it off any longer. Please make that decision today to put your trust in Jesus and come into God's family and know that nothing and no one can ever separate you from His love. But if you examine yourself today and you see that you are in the faith, then this is an encouragement to press on. Trusting in His finished work on the cross rejoicing in His eternal salvation, confident of better things in our lives because we are safe and secure in His hands. And so one day, we will inherit all that He has promised because of His amazing grace.